Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. All right, go ahead and grab a seat. Is it going to be problematic if I back this up a little bit? I'm checking with with my guys right here. All right. All right, how is everybody this morning? Yeah? Okay, I wouldn't believe that by the response. I'll try to convince you that you're doing better than the response revealed. How is everybody? All right. Um, It's a joy uh, to be here this morning. Uh, We really consider Geo and Destiny and the team and a lot of the leaders here and a lot of the Abide family near and dear to us. Um, It's a joy to run together in the region for what it is that God is doing. Um, To find uh, hearts that can be knit together, uh, right? One mind, one purpose, one mission. Um, I feel like on a heart level, We're crying out for the same thing, longing to see the Lord break in in a unique way in our generation and align our weak efforts with what is his purposes uh, to be glorified, yes, in Central Florida, but also throughout the nations of the world um, and to connect what is our immediate contribution to what is the ultimate end of the age scenario. Um, So it's a real joy, man, we we love experience. He said, put the unrepentant brother out. In some ways, exile him from the community, right? Now, the connection there would be the Old Testament idea of how the land was a picture or it was the, the implication of God's covering. It was the place of his dominion, right? So every time they transgressed the covenant, he would exile them. Right? He would put them into judgment and hand them over to the nations, but in restoration, he would bring them back. Well, the same idea is the New Testament, um, New Covenant idea of the people of God, the, the, the place of belonging and anchoring. It's the place of our house in God together as the people of God. It's where we find our belonging as exiles and misfits. Right? The world is not our primary place Um, for housing or belonging, it's the church, but the church as a people, right? So when you find your tribe, go all in and go deep, right? Like Colossians would say, it's time to get planted and rooted. It's time to get planted and rooted. Um, Well, you don't know where I've been. You don't know where I've been, (laughs) right? Join the club, right? Like we've all got uh, our justifies the man that laid hands on me the night that I met the Lord and became a new creation. Uh, and so it's a real honor. Yeah, come on. It's a real honor. Um, and grateful to the Lord um, to be with you all this morning. Uh, you can open your Bible to Matthew chapter 9. We will get there. Uh, I promise, no, no matter what it may seem like along the way, uh, we will land in Matthew chapter 9 and use that as a way to provoke our hearts for a particular response. Um, How many of you know we are living in a historic moment? 
Um, my, my heart has a trembling in it this morning uh, for the days that we're living in and really like a swirl on the inside of sorts for things that I, that I feel to share and communicate, um, today especially. Uh, we're living in a historic moment. Uh, as Gio shared, there's not been many moments in the time that I've been alive, which is now almost 42 years, where I've seen the Lord initiate a pull in a global way on the saints to direct their attention and their efforts towards a particular objective or destination of sorts. Um, there is a global call. Um, yes, I get it that Mike Bickle is a trumpet in the time that you've been saved or born again. Uh, right? Maybe Israel to you has just been you know, an eclectic group of folks right, in prayer meetings who wave banners and blow shofars, right? Maybe it's just been this political idea that gets manipulated or leveraged in a variety of ways, like, oh, we need to side with Israel. Um, and so the ups and downs in the political arena of those who favor and those who dislike, uh, maybe it's just been an entire disconnect. Maybe there's never been any connection. There's never been on a heart level any burden. There's never been any reality or traction at all um, with the place and the people and how Israel is in a lot of ways central to the circumstances that will fulfill the end of the age. And so regardless of where you are on the sphere, we want to use the scriptures as our guide. Right? We want to read the Bible verses and let the Bible verses take us where they take us. And then we want to contend with God in the place of fasting and prayer for wisdom and insight and understanding, right? Like Daniel, who in chapter eight um, communicates five years of journey and experience, but he says, I didn't really have any clue as to what God was saying or what it all meant. But that wasn't enough. And, and repentance. Um, this is a moment for intercession and in some cases repentance where it may be applicable, right? Repentance from just living entirely disconnected from the divine narrative and being self-consumed and conditioned by our generation to put the eye at the center of all of our life and desires, right? I get it. In, in a Western experience, especially here in America, we've been conditioned to believe that we're the most important and amazing person in the story. And it's just not true. And as confrontational as that is for people in the West, it is reality. There is a king who is coming again. He is coming on the cloud and he will fulfill the story that he has begun in the way that he has communicated the whole way through, right? It's why we need the scriptures. It's why we have to have constant exposure to the word of God, because it's in the word of God that we are confronted with God himself and what it is that God wants. In the word, in the verses, in the scriptures, we find the person of God revealed as he has graciously chosen to make himself known, right? God cannot just be researched, he must be revealed. God is not subject to human in a garden, unleashed upon a people to share himself with a family that he would form to be the bride of his son. And we find that out of this garden experience, 
that what's cultivated is going to be extended and that God's fellowship and dominion is going to be cultivated throughout the created order, right? The, the Bible is beautiful in the consistency of the glimpses that we get that help our hearts to be provoked, to engage or to be aligned with what is the ultimate narrative, right? The, the Bible is not just random disconnected stories throughout what is the content of the scriptures. There's an overarching narrative. There's a beautiful undercurrent. There's a symmetry and a consistency that beckons our provoking to know God and to be aligned to what he's doing. And the Bible is beautiful because we get what I would call these prototypes along the way. We get imperfect glimpses that connect us with what is ultimate realities. We find it even in the garden, right? We find the first Adam. And I use that language because of Romans 5 and how Paul would contrast the first Adam with the last Adam. We get the first Adam. You could call him version one of the human experience. His eternal prized possession uh, that Jesus actually laid his life down for. But the situation in the garden that we find is that the first Adam fails with his bride by his side and they are conquered by immediate appetites. Well, the ultimate reality is that the last Adam, the son of man, whom Paul contrasts with the first Adam in Romans 5, he will not fail for he has overcome. As the angel tells John in Revelation 5, don't weep, behold. For there's one who's been found worthy. There's one who's overcome. The lamb that was slain, the root of Jesse and the descendant of David. He is the victorious and the exalted one. And the situation is that the son of man, the last Adam, where the first Adam with his bride in failure to cultivate a place for the father to tabernacle. The last Adam, who is the son of man with his bride by his side will be exalted they will overcome. They will overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And this exalted people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue gathered to the side of the exalted bridegroom king will stand in the earth in an unending place of dominion and in the millennial reign. God's ultimate narrative and strategy to bring fulfillment or to culminate the age. All of our lives are leaning in towards a predetermined destination. It is predetermined because God has communicated what he wants. And there's no devil in hell. There's no power, no ruler, no wicked or dark hierarchy in an unseen realm or reality that can derail the things that God has set into motion. What God has already set into motion and worked out in Christ on the cross, he will have exactly what he said he wanted. And it's important that we track with the story along the way so that we don't get lost. So that our hearts don't get derailed and we don't become disconnected from what it is that God is doing. The Bible gives us these beautiful prototypes they're glimpses. We catch them all the way through, all the way through. In the beginning, it's the garden scenario with the man and his bride cultivating creation. But as we begin to move forward, 
we see in other places, your wins, your losses, your ups, your downs, with how perfect or imperfect your participation is. And as you track with the details of Abram, you realize that there was imperfect participation. But God was faithful to continue what it is that he started and promised in and through the life of Abram. In Genesis 12, we find that God gives him a covenant or a promise. He says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great people. And through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. These three things God is on the hook for. We find that even when he puts Abram to sleep in the place of establishing the covenant, the separated pieces of the animal, we find the torch and the oven that walk through the pieces. It's father and son covenanting themselves to the plan. It's father and son realizing that human effort is going to fail them and that it will never actually be able to be produced or fulfilled with human effort or contribution alone. But in the place of the eternal purpose and the covenant that God is unleashing or revealing, father and son walk through. God's name and glory are on the hook, so to speak, for fulfilling what it is that he creation in order to bring redemption to the lost peoples of the earth that have forfeited God's love and leadership to worship gods and other idols. Well, when you move forward to David and the Davidic covenant, David gets the where, and we understand that it's going to be centralized to a particular city. And the descendant of David is going to rule on a throne that is going to be centered in Jerusalem. Yeah. And as much as we either don't like or just don't know, much of the Bible is a Middle Eastern centered storyline. Um, it is a Jewish narrative of sorts where we're leaning towards a day where a Jewish king is going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem and he is going to rule the created order and bring discipleship to the nations in the knowledge of God and the ways of righteousness. And there will be an unending experience in the age to come where the son of man with the peoples of the earth will cultivate and receive the father who will descend down and then we will enjoy the father's horrific reality, being mocked, criticized, and accused by people and powers. Look at you in your greatest moment of failure. But we understand that God works with a different wisdom. And Paul tells us in Corinthians that had the rulers known what they were doing when they crucified Jesus, they never would have nailed him to the tree that day. God underpowers the wisdom and the strength and the might of the system of the age. And because he's chosen the lowest place, Philippians 2 tells us that his father has exalted him to the highest place. And Ephesians 1 gives us insight that because he's been exalted to the highest place, he's now ruling above powers. He's reigning above principalities. He's made a mockery and a public spectacle of all of his enemies. And the consistency of the plan of God is still in motion. They were confused after Jesus was crucified. They rallied around him in Acts chapter 1 when he was alive from the dead. He was teaching them for 40 days about the kingdom. 
And they asked him a couple of questions. This is to gain traction in our hearts with the consistency of God's story. If you're familiar with the text, you know they asked him, hey, listen, bro, you're back. Like, it's amazing. Like, we were scared for a couple of days. Like, we didn't really know what was going on. Like, man, like, like all of the rebels and our adversaries. Is this now the time where you're going to set up the throne and establish the kingdom, which means deliverance for us from all of the hostile peoples that are against your love and leadership? Is that now what this means? And what does he tell them? I'm not only on the hook for one and two. He says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. He says, those things are going to come, but I need number three also. I need you guys to go preach to Gentiles. <laughs> he says, we're going to do number one and two, but they're all tied together. You guys want land and people. You want great deliverance, nation, kingdom, but I want number three. I need you to go preach to Gentiles because it's in the preaching to Gentiles and the way that preaching to Gentiles and a born again people from the redeemed nations of the earth are supposed to bring a connection to number one and two. They're all tied together. Right? This was even Paul's jealousy in the book of Romans as he tracked with what most of us would consider to be the full gospel that Paul preached throughout the region as he was planting churches and fellowship with God and to be aligned to what it is that God is doing. And Paul says that the groan is inside of those who believe because the spirit is groaning. And he talks about the cost of the groan and the suffering and the glory that are intermingled. For if we suffer with him, will we not also be glorified with him? Yeah. And he talks about nothing can separate us. No height, no depth, no demon in hell. There's nothing in all of the world to those of us that believe that can separate us from this great love of God. Well, interestingly enough, that chapter eight is the consideration of glory and suffering being directly connected, that it taking the work of the Spirit inside of those that believe to actually groan in alignment with what God and creation are both groaning for, that it actually takes the Spirit and the work of the Spirit to bring a divine connection to what is the divine narrative, that it takes the Spirit working in us to sever us from our own self-disconnected, vain ambitions and material idols and ways of living to deeply immerse us or baptize us in God's story, which produces a groan for what God wants. Well, interesting. Then you have, says, I would be accursed and cut off from the knowledge of God and my own salvation if it means that God would fulfill his purposes to the people of Israel. Moses has a similar cry in the tent where he says, Lord, if you're not going to actually fulfill your word to them, then just wrap the whole thing up and include me in it because your name and your glory is attached to this. And we realize that what you're doing is not necessarily because we deserve it, but because you deserve it, because your son deserves it. And because the fulfillment of your word 
in a world scenario that at best has disqualified itself from you actually fulfilling everything you said you would do. Lord, this will be to your name and your glory. And we want to see you glorified by accomplishing what is your eternal purpose. Well, Paul says, I would lose my own salvation in chapter nine. It's in the consideration of the provoking of Israel. He says, don't you dare get prideful, right? He's talking to the collection of the nations. Don't you dare get prideful to think that somehow now you've eclipsed God's love and the wild olive branches. You've been grafted in to the vine and God has allowed you to take root in his story, right? We know we're not trying to figure out where God fits in our story. We've been brought into his story and we want our lives to be conditioned, to be provoked, to carry the jealousy of God that what's ultimate informs us and inspires us to live in a way that's actually contributing to what we're doing in an immediate way that aligns with the things that God says is ultimate in every way. And in chapter 10, Paul says of Romans, how will they know? Now I get it, often we cherry pick verses and we pull them in a devotional way to fit our own desires. And we create a context in which we are bringing verses into rather than the consideration of the context itself. You know, I'll just let you know, the Bible actually preaches an amazing message when you just let it preach what it's preaching. Right, right, like the Bible has enough to say. You don't need your own content. You don't have to add jokes and poems. You don't need all of this extra content and that he is going to abolish godliness in Jacob and restore them the way that he has always desired to do. Well, this is not new content. There have been tracking with the divine story. And then the consideration flipping into Romans 12, which most oftentimes gets used in every which way, except the way that Paul was actually communicating. He says, now offer your lives as living sacrifices. In the consideration of God's desires, you're going to need a transformed mind. You're going to have to be a new creation and it's going to take the work of the spirit in you to actually transform your mind to where you can discern what is the perfect will of God. And in the consideration of the perfect will of God, offer your lives, your bodies, the vehicle that God has given you to actually love and obey him, offer your lives as living sacrifices. In the consideration of what? Glory and suffering being intermingled. In the cost of the witness that is going to be required to provoke Israel to jealousy as we lean in closer towards the end of the age. There will be a redemptive work even to the Edomites, which is just a consideration of the most wicked people on the face of the earth in their time contextually. But Jesus said, I'm looking at a particular people and I'm waiting for a particular people in a particular city to sing a particular song. It's Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus told them, 
before this can be fulfilled, I need you to go preach to Gentiles. Paul saw himself as an apostolic figure, commissioned a sent one to the Gentiles. And he did not see it as a disconnect from the groan that God had given him. But actually he saw it divinely connected that if I go preach to Gentiles, God is gonna get what he wants in Israel that I've got to preach to a people that are going to be redeemed from the corruption and the world system and the hostile order of what right now is the nations as a consideration. And God is going to bring in every skin tone, every background, every people. Our presence was to be carried. The ark ends up in the home of a Gentile by the name of Obed-Edom. And there's a three-year period that is implied by the three months that the ark is resting in Obed-Edom's house. And there the ark of God is resting in the home of a Gentile people. And in 2 Samuel 6, it says that they come and proclaim it to David and that David is provoked by the proclamation and his heart turns to go seeking after the ark that is resting in the company or in the home of the Gentiles. And it says that through the provoking, it presses David, who is a figure of king and priest and leadership in the great city of the king, which is Jerusalem, that he is pressed by the proclamation. And there is a provocation that causes him to journey to the home of the Gentiles to go find what he understands belongs to him in a particular way. And that this great king leads a divine procession, a joy-filled procession of worship and intercession and an eruption of God's purposes as the presence of God symbolically the Passover meal. God used a man to bring deliverance from what was at that time a demonic world power and system. It was a glimpse of of a Babylon type reality that is going to cover the earth towards the end of the age when the system of Babylon will be raging throughout the nations. And God used the ministry of Moses in order to bring with great signs, wonders, and miracles, judgment to the gods of the world, to the idols that they worshiped, and deliverance to the people that he deserves. We have to see Passover as a prototype. It gives us a glimpse into the ministry of the Son of Man in his second coming, where in the moment we have Moses, who is leading this momentary or immediate assault on the kingdoms of the earth to bring deliverance to God's holy possession. And with signs and wonders, they come out with the mighty acts of God. Well, we know that there's coming a day and an hour that Revelation communicates to us where the worthy one is going to open the scroll. 
Pharaoh who will be that moment the demonic embodiment who is the man of lawlessness and the antichrist and just as it was with Moses the son of man will be the end time deliverer and Jesus as the divine representative God embodied in humanity will deliver even in that day not just his holy possession but the remnant of Israel from the antichrist and his armies and if we don't catch the glimpses then we can't possibly ready our hearts in the right way for the things that are happening and what is to come we find that Jesus will be the greater Moses he will be the end time divine representative he will be the son of man God embodied in a man leading the end time Passover against who will be the end time Pharaoh, demonic embodiment in a man, the man of lawlessness. And this will be no match of sorts. We get Ezekiel 38, 39, that God will deliver them from the rage of the man of lawlessness, that he will abolish all of the rage of the nations through his representative, the mediator of the covenant. We find in Isaiah 11 and 27 that God's purposes to deliver the nation needs the conquest, regathering the land, delivering the people from the adversaries of God. He will be the greater David leading the procession after delivering God's holy possession from the end time Pharaoh. It does not say that he will touch down upon the Mount of Olives. It says that he will lead a procession into the great city and that he will establish his throne even upon Zion. So we know that the ministry of Moses will be eclipsed. We know that the ministry of Joshua will be eclipsed. We know that the ministry of David will be eclipsed. And we find it through these glimpses, through these prototypes. We find it even in the life of Joseph. A few details about the life of Joseph that maybe we've not yet considered in the way that it's being communicated. Joseph is the youngest. He's introduced into the story after many brothers and even mothers and fathers that have come before him. He's the youngest seeming, but he's favored. His coat of many colors, symbolic of the nations, the, the redemption of a people in fullness. And he has this vision from God, this Jesus, even on the night before he was crucified. And we find that from the pit in a Gentile world that he is exalted to the right hand. And we find that the son who is favored yet rejected by his brothers is exalted to the right hand. And he is the human administration of the king's desires in the earth. He is at the right hand of the most powerful man in all of the region and the world as they knew it at that time. And he uses his platform and his placement being exalted in a Gentile world to actually provide for and to provoke the people of Israel and to call them because of the days of famine and trouble and woe that had come upon the region. In Jeremiah 30, it talks about the days of Jacob's trouble that are coming in a futuristic way. 
But Joseph uses his platform in order to provoke Israel into a Gentile world where the Gentile provision begins to provoke them by providing for them in, dar in days of darkness for the nations, then what will the unveiling actually be? And Paul's estimation is life from the dead itself. And in Genesis 42, Joseph is veiled and he weeps behind the veil because he longs to reveal himself to his brothers. But he knows that the time has not yet come. And through their interaction, we find later in Genesis 50, that the father has passed and the brothers now realize that the brother they betrayed and mistreated has actually become the most powerful man in the land. He has all of the power and the leverage to be able to get even with them because of how it is that they've mistreated him. And they weep and they throw themselves at the mercy of Joseph once he's been revealed to them. Oh, the great days were Zechariah 12, where they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. And in their own burden and despair, God will give grace for them to weep. And a grace and a supplication will be poured out, actually using it in a bigger story. It's a part of a greater framework there's a connection of things that are happening in an immediate way to what God desires in an ultimate way. And he says, you don't have to worry about the earthly father getting in the way of how I'm going to treat you because there's another father that's at work. There's another father that's moving on behalf of his desires. And I don't desire to get even with you. I've actually been longing and weeping for this moment when I could gather you. Even as when Jesus rallied outside of Jerusalem and he wept and he said, oh, how I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you've missed your day or your hour of visitation. Joseph weeps over his brothers and the consideration of what God is doing. I would suggest to you that Jesus is living the Joseph story. That right now Jesus is living in the moment where he is veiled to his brothers yet weeping behind the veil. Exalted in a Gentile world and making provision for his brothers. If you've done it even to the least of these, then you've done it to me. For these are my brothers and sisters. I identify with them. I've been revealed as one of them. And Jesus is weeping over the consideration of God's eternal purpose. The exaltation of the Son of Man in the nations of the world. Like this is not just some simple suggestion. That the communication is urgent. It's despair being communicated. Not that Jesus is desperate because he's lacking something but he realizes that God longs for participation. The eyes of the Lord are seeking a heart that's fully his on behalf of who he can show himself strong. And the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro throughout the earth, looking for a man or a woman that would get in the gap, that would actually get in the trenches and that would be gripped with intercession to partner with God in the place of prayer on behalf of his purposes. 
Oh, that the fulfillment of Isaiah 62 would become a reality in our generation. Watchmen on the wall, contending day and night, giving him no rest until we see your purposes fulfilled in Israel and the reconciliation of the nations. But Jesus' language in Matthew 9 is one that is very urgent. He says, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, I implore you. It's almost like Paul's language at the end of 2 Corinthians 5. He carries the word and the ministry of reconciliation. He says, the context of Matthew 9 is the consideration of Jesus' heart for a witness being brought to Israel. And we know that because when you continue in the following verses, which begin chapter 10, it's a lengthy chapter about the cost of actually following Jesus, Jesus' way. It's the consideration that no student is greater than the teacher. It's the consideration that if they hated him, then they will hate his followers also. It's the consideration of not fearing those who are able to kill the body but can't actually destroy the spirit. It's the consideration of being brought before leaders and governments in the context of Israel and not knowing what to say, but that the work and the power of the Spirit actually filling our mouths in order to communicate the witness that God desires and deserves. It's the counting of laboring with God for what God wants and Jesus's heart and the realization that his witness cost him something and those that are going to be gripped to follow in suit to bring that same witness need to Why would he consider that it is going to take a real work of the Spirit in the lives of lovers that become laborers to ekbalo them, to actually be moved from where they are to somewhere they don't want to go in the consideration of a witness being brought to Israel? Jesus communicated the cost of what that witness would require. He communicated the hostility, not just of the nations towards Israel, but also of Israel towards the proclamation of the gospel. And he said, it's going to take a real work of the spirit in order for the father to move in the lives of lovers and laborers to move them in the way that God desires, to displace them, to actually jolt them from their lives of comfort, from their lives of living for themselves, from their lives of being preoccupied with things that right now, the entirety of their life orbit around their desires, that he does it because they deserve this witness. Israel is one of the most unreached people group. In fact, it's in the top five, I believe, of unreached people groups throughout the nations. Filled with tourism, the Lord draws the nations to Israel, literally millions of them on an annual basis. But we never consider them in the preaching of the gospel. And Jesus is saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would ekbalo laborers, that he would displace them from their lives of preoccupation, comfort, and lesser assignments, that they would feel displaced and burdened, that the Spirit would literally drive them 
that the Spirit would move them in such an urgent and violent way. Now, I understand not all of us are going to be called to actually partner with God in a way where we take up our lives and we journey and reposition ourselves out in the Middle East in order to preach the gospel to Israel and the surrounding peoples. I get that. But the call that is upon us as a people is to join him in the place of intercession. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. This is our call. This is the mandate upon our lives. This is the Isaiah 62 narrative. Join in the harvest, the mission by, and do it in an urgent way. Pray forth to the Lord of the harvest that he would begin to shake people from around the world, from their lower level and inferior preoccupations with their own stories and vain ambitions and pursuits. The kingdoms of this world will fade. All of the glistening lights, all of the attractions, all of the idols that our hearts have formed and been captivated by, they will fade. And at the end, there will be one shining in glory, more radiant than any other, more beautiful than any that our eyes have laid eyes upon. And he will be exalted. And what he has always wanted, he will have. The question is, will he have it now, and will he have it in you, and will he have it in me? Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest for this. Begin to plead with the Father that he releases a move of the Spirit that actually works on it. Is God's leadership over the nations and the timeline does it find any placement on my radar at all? Or am I living satisfied and disconnected? Am I living preoccupied with earthly material things? Beloved, it's time to get in the game. It's time to get in the game. And I believe that this is what the Lord is doing in these history-making days. These next 21 days. Again, I started with, I don't care where you've been up until now. It's time to get in the game. It's time to get traction. It's time for a fresh immersion into the heart of God and a release of his spirit in a fresh way throughout the nations of the world. These are historic days and these are history-making days. So I'm going to ask us just for the next moment, right now where we are, I, I get it, the, the, the content may have been much, and I'm okay with that if it's something that you can go back to and glean. But I'm asking us over the next moments, on a heart level, where are you with God's story? On a heart level, where are you with God's story? Man, in our heart cry this morning is wherever I've been with God's story, Lord, I'm asking you to fill me afresh with your spirit and to give me grace to pull me in in a deeper way, whatever that means for me. Again, man, if the Lord ekbalos you and drives you from your primary place of living and being, pray. Every once in a while, I may give in an offering. Every once in a while, I may attend a conference that's centered on the things that you want, but I don't really want to be moved. I don't really want to be bothered. I don't want any touch or pressure upon the life that I desire. 
In Matthew 9, Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Because it's gonna take a real spirit work to orient people's lives to what I'm after. Where they're not consumed with their own kingdoms and their own dreams, their own egos and ambitions, but there's a radical reorientation to God himself and what he is driving the timeline to, the predetermined destination of the divine narrative. Come on, together, uh, let's just, let's lift our hands just as an act of our surrender, just as a practical demonstration. And as Cove begins to lead and play, and Holy Spirit all over the room, I'm asking you for a release of great grace and power. Great grace and power. Great grace and power to reorient our lives. They will proclaim the gospel. They will be used in a provisionary way in order to preach to the children of Israel where they will see the Son of Man as an exalted ruler in a Gentile world where they will be a provoking because of the blessing of God that is resting upon the house of the Gentiles and kings and rulers and leaders will begin to turn. Kings and leaders and rulers will be provoked. Kings and leaders and rulers will have a heart shift. Kings and leaders and rulers will come to the knowledge of God. Kings and leaders and rulers. Come on, let's just begin to lift our voice together. Come on, let's begin to lift our voice together. Jesus said it's going to take a real work of the Spirit. We're asking you, Lord, pour out your Spirit. Pour out your Spirit. Not just for some charismania or to fulfill all of our own individual thrills or desires. Pour out your Spirit to break us from our self-centeredness and our self-absorption. Pour out your Spirit to conquer the love of idols and the love of the system. It's the revelation of the eternal purpose of God and a desire to come under His love and leadership in a greater way. Lord, we want you to have what you want. Pour out your Spirit upon us and upon the nations of the earth. We want you to have what you want. We want you to have what you want. We want you to have what you want. Come, Lord Jesus. But we know that your coming is conditional. Your coming is conditional. It's not imminent, it's urgent. Your coming is conditional. Come, Lord Jesus. Pour out your spirit. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org, or download our app.